Well, Westmount, let's just continue. Take your copy of God's Word. We have been in the Psalms. We'll be there to begin. Psalm 100. Turn there with me. Psalm 100. And as you do so, Westmount, I do want to assure you that I am looking forward to getting back to Romans, and I know you are too. It's been so encouraging to have a few of you ask, when are we getting back to Romans? Believe me, I've probably enjoyed no study more than that and been edified by it, so we will get there. I'm very eager with you. The back half of Romans 8 and the rest of Romans awaits us. In a few weeks, we'll be there this fall. However, as we noted this spring, we have places that we really do need to visit first. We need to do this. Lots of housekeeping these days. We need to do this. Other portions of God's word that not only require consideration today, but here it is, other portions of God's word that we need because it's required because confusion needs to be cleared. Confusion needs to be cleared. As such, this spring and summer series on biblical doctrine seeks to give us such clarity. That's our endeavor. That, I trust, is what we've been doing in this series thus far. In the spring, if you remember, we looked at discipline and repentance. We looked at the need for discipline. Disciples of Jesus Christ, right? Need discipline. And we looked at repentance, and not just repentance proper, what true biblical repentance is versus the false version of repentance. This summer, we looked at administration and marriage, two areas, two doctrines, where there's clear order in view. Our God is not a random God. Our God is a God of order. And when he calls his people to things like worship, he calls it in order and marriage. Well, today, we turn our attention to a topic that I might submit to you has resulted in a large number of questions over the past couple years at Westmount. In one sense, I stand before you today to say this is long overdue, and that is corporate worship, corporate worship. And you'll recognize this as I go through these questions. Regular questions that we've received on the corporate worship here at Westmount, people come through the doors and have a lot of questions about what we do, what you've seen already today, right? Questions such as this, why do you have a response to the scripture reading? Doesn't the Catholic Church do that? Right? Why do you mention you should be baptized to take the Lord's table? Aren't you employing conditions? Why do we sing all these psalms? I mean, there's a lot of good songs at other churches and songs on the radio. Why are your church prayers not spontaneous? Doesn't that hinder the work of the Holy Spirit? Why do you not have a time for the offering? And where can I do that? And why do you just preach through books of the Bible? Why not more topical, more variety? Literally one book for two years? Those are just a sample, and we want to tell you, listen, we are so grateful for them. We are. I am. It demonstrates you're not just passively walking through the door and just taking things in. You're arriving Lord's Day's active and very aware of what's going on in this building. Very good. And to begin, we want to say first and foremost, listen, beloved, that is how it should be. Active worshipers. Is that not true? 
active worshipers. Lord's Day worship, indeed, is not a passive exercise. It's not a consumer endeavor. We're used to consumerism out there. We take in things out there, but not in here, right? We come actively. We are called to come, gather, and actively give praise and worship to God. That's why you're here this morning. Fundamentally, that is why you're here this morning. Now, as I trust will become clear today, gathering Sunday mornings for the purpose of worshiping and giving glory to God, listen, it's not our idea at Westmount. It's not something David, Gary, and I got around a table one day and said, you know what, let's do church this way. It's not our stripe and distinction. What have we said for the past decade here at Westmount? What does God's word call us to do? And this is what God has called his people to do. And listen, and I hope this is clear today, from ancient days to today. Let's then set the table this morning in God's word. Back to the familiar Psalm 100. We've sung it. We've spoken on it. Let's now read it. Just to set the table, we'll be all over God's word this morning. But let's just read that to start. Look at it with me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and many more that inform what we do these Lord's Day mornings. God, help us to see it, understand it, receive it, and live it, we pray, to your glory. Amen. Westman, as we seek to address questions and walk through our purpose today, I want you to know there are a number of things we just simply will not be able to address. Just an inordinate amount of things when we talk about the gathering of the saints. We just won't be able to get there. Our focus this morning is this right now, the Sunday morning service, this gathering. So we have many things we would want to say about Sunday school, adult and child, fundamentals of the faith, chapel kids, many things we could say about our midweek gathering on Wednesday nights, our men's study, our women's study, the rest, all of that, lots of things we want to say and should say and could say. We just won't have time to get to it this morning. That's for another time. I want you to know, though, certainly there is purpose for all of those things. None of those things are just random. They're all done for a very specific reason. But today our focus will be this service, here and now, what happens here Sunday mornings every week. And believe me, we will need all the time that we can spare to cover this, every single minute. Which brings us to our first introductory comment, and it is this. I hope you've heard this word at Westmount, and you'll continue to hear it, and that is intention. I pray that you would say everything that you do at Westmount is very intentional. I pray that's something that you've noticed, and you would say it's very intentional. In other words, we don't do anything. No matter how minute you think the detail is, we don't do it just because, and we certainly don't do it just because other churches do it. One of the things we labor for here at Westmount is to be very intentional about what we do. 
There's no randomness in our corporate worship. John 4, 24, Jesus said to the woman at the well in a conversation about biblical worship, Jesus what said this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and what? Truth. 1 Corinthians 14.40, in a chapter outlying the corporate worship of the assembly at Corinth, a principle for us as well, God's word says, all things should be done decently and in order. In other words, not randomly. Westmount, God's word, listen, does not prescribe subjective, random, or felt worship. You won't see that in the pages of scripture. God's word does not say, just show up Sunday morning and hope that the Holy Spirit comes down. God's word is intentional with worship direction. Thus we are too. Beloved, what did we learn before Romans? Do you remember the book? Exodus. And what did we learn in Exodus? Set up a tent and worship me however you want. Very prescriptive, precise, down to measurements. Do you remember that? That is how you come into my presence. That's how you worship me, God says. Two, let's talk for a moment about liturgy. That is a very bad word in the modern church, isn't it? Liturgy. Liturgy is from the Latin word letteria, which means simply this, service. That's what liturgy means. It means service. At root, it is actually the same word, we're going to get to this in Romans, that's used in Romans 12.1. Listen to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Holy and acceptable to God, listen, which is your spiritual worship. There it is. Spiritual worship. Latria, there in the Greek, same word, you Christian are called to present your bodies as a spiritual service daily. A spiritual, again, latria, if you will, a spiritual liturgy, a spiritual liturgy. In fact, your footnote may say rational service Your own daily liturgy. That's the gospel response. Thus, liturgy is service. Do you see that? That is why these mornings are called church services. That's where the word comes from. And beloved, listen, every local church that gathers Sunday morning has a service. Is that not true? Thus, every local church that gathers Sunday morning has what? A liturgy. They do. Here's the problem. The only difference is that most don't like the word liturgy. It's far too antiquated, and it's not modern enough. And what do you get? You get the modern tagline. I know you've heard this. Churches will say what? This is not your grandmother's church, right? There's a reason they say that. And listen, the structure of a church's worship service is what is called a liturgy. And more... Each local church's service or liturgy, this is the key, beloved. Each church's liturgy communicates something. It's communicating something. This is very, very important. It communicates something about God, his word, and the worship of God. It does. So the issue is not that modern churches don't have a liturgy. It is really that their liturgy communicates something very different. Is that not true? Such as this, maybe playing to our fickle emotions, pandering to our small attention spans, or feeding our self-focus and the like. 
But church, let's understand this to begin. This modern approach to liturgy and service is very abnormal. Up until 50 to 75 years ago, worship service, church liturgies were very, very different to what you see that is common today. What you see in modern churches now, such liturgies, that's what's foreign. Yes, foreign, in fact, to the very word of God, which I trust will be clear this morning. So yes, it's true, our grandmother's church was much closer to what God called for. These are common, timeless church service elements for the past 2,000 years. Again, the aberration, the anomaly is the past half century. The norm has been 1,900 years. Centuries flowing out of the apostolic church that looked generally the same. Certainly local stripes, but same connective tissue. Now, of course, church history is not our standard, right? We know that. God's word is. Thus, the other side of the coin, the side, we could say, the foundation is always God's word. And the question this morning is, what does God's word show us about our corporate worship? Now, that's sure footing, isn't it? That's sure footing. So this morning, we're going to consider the various elements of our Sunday morning service here at Westmount, and we're going to do so in light of God's word. So let's begin then with how we open every service. And our first point, our call to worship. Our call to worship. The call to worship is the common, ancient, corporate call we see to God's people. It is a call we see repeatedly in the Bible to God's gathered people. Just basically pick up from what Jerry talked about this morning. We're in the Psalms. Turn back for a moment to Psalm 95. Again, here we see in ancient Israel the gathering of God's people to bring joy in light of Messiah, right? And here we see Psalm 95. Look at verse 1 and 2. Oh, come, note the words. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. See that? Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Turn to Psalm 100. Look at verse 4. What did we sing and say? Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Turn to Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Look at this. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. We could go on and on and on. And of course, each gathering... In light of what ancient Israel was called to do and what they did as they were called to worship, as Jerry mentioned this morning, we gather here in preview as messianic subjects that will one day gather in a very real place and give this praise. We're called to this worship in the future. And let's get a glimpse, by the way, of the future. Revelation 5, no different in the future, no different. Revelation 5, verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, here's the worship, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, note the multitude, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Beloved, when God's people gather, listen, past, present, or future, when God's people gather, they are called to worship. They're called to worship. That is why we sing not just Sunday mornings, we sing midweek, don't we? We sing in pods. We sing when the men get together, when the women get together, in our family Bible hours, in our homes. We sing, we sing, we sing, right? Because we're called to that worship. And if true there in those Monday to Saturday gatherings, beloved, and this should be obvious, how much more true Lord's Day with the gathering of the assembly? Listen, the call to worship is a reminder that God invites us into his presence. The call to worship is a reminder that God calls his people to respond and worship him. The call to worship is a reminder that God is calling on a heart response from his people. This is why whoever calls us to worship, as Jerry did this morning, exhorts us to respond in praise. This is the logical, biblical, right response for one with messianic hope and expectation. But it's not just that. It's also why the opening songs we sing And I know this if you've been paying attention at Westmount. The opening songs we sing, that first slot, always include a call like that. Have you noticed that? Songs like, all creatures of our God and King. What do we sing? Lift up your voice and with us what? Sing. Songs like, oh, worship the King. All glorious above and gratefully what? Sing his wonderful love. We sing praise to the Lord the Almighty. All ye who hear, now what? Now to his temple draw near. We sing to God be the glory. Listen to the chorus of that. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. What? Let the people rejoice. And then, of course, crown him with many crowns. I love this line. Awake, my soul, and sing. Who doesn't need that sometimes on a Sunday morning? Awake. Of him who died for me, your call to worship, awake, awake. Westmount, the call to worship is a vital part of our corporate worship. Why? Not only does the Bible call us, so thus we call each other to start Sundays, but mark this, the call to worship is also the practical call for God's people. Here it is, to turn when you come through those doors from worldly care and distraction, and who has that? all of us, and to tune their hearts and minds on worship to God. How often are we finally checking into worship about 75% into the service because of all the Monday to Saturday stuff? We need to be called to worship. We need a song that orients us, calls us to get awake and tune our hearts to sing His praise. Beloved, listen, and this is important because we dare not approach God on our terms. We don't. We approach God on his terms, right? He calls us to. So from call to worship, then we move, of course, into musical worship. I was tempted to just call this music, and that's what it is in many places, just music. But it is not just music. It is musical worship. Having music as part of our corporate worship, of course, beloved, is not in debate. It's always been part of the gathered saints' corporate worship, always And it continues to be to this day. In almost every gathering of the local church, here's one you know you're going to see. Music. 
And what is often asked, and especially here at Westmount, is why do you sing the way you do at Westmount? Well, to begin to answer that, let's go back to the Psalms. Go to 120, Psalm 120. Why do you sing the way that you do at Westmount? If you were to look at Psalms 120 to 134, those are called the Songs of Ascents. Why are they called Songs of Ascents? Not just because the subheading says it for every single psalm from 120 to 134, but those were, as we understand, the psalms that would have been sung by Israel on pilgrimage, those feasts in Jerusalem on pilgrimage as they were gathering to worship. This is their songbook. You see that? Pilgrim songs. These are songs that God's people sung as they're gathering together. Now, we could say we sing them because God's people sung them in Israel. That could be a reason. But there's even more purpose and direction here. Turn to Colossians 3. There's even more. We, of course, are Gentiles, as we heard this morning, and we are that. We are God's people of a different variety and a different time. And in the New Testament, we get commands like this. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How so? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How so? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Look at that. The beginning again. Let what? The word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, context here is... Musical worship. So we sing, Behold our God. If you notice when we sing, Behold our God, that's Isaiah 40. We sing Habakkuk 3, an entire chapter, right? Right out of God's word. We sing the word of Christ. In obedience to this, we sing the word of Christ. But also, verse 16, we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Three types of music prescribed there. Let's look at this. First and foremost, we sing psalms. That's what it says. So, why do we sing psalms at Westmount? Answer, because the Bible commands us to. And not just here. You can turn over to Ephesians 5, by the way. If you look at Ephesians 5, verses 17 to 19, notice the similar command. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is that? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Is a second blessing? What is this? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart. By the way, we'll go on to talk about all the other things that being filled with the Spirit looks like. But sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There it is again. We sing psalms because it is the primary prescription here, repeated in God's word. We sing psalms because God's people have always sung the psalms. And again, always. Paul calls us to sing psalms. The early church sang psalms. The reformers, by the way, sang lots of psalms. So did the Puritans. Century upon century, they sang psalms. That's why we sing psalms at Westmount, in obedience to God's word and in concert with the saints of old. In fact, again, up until the 18th century, local churches regularly sang, note this, just psalms. Did you know that? They just sang psalms. Then, of course, something happened in the 18th century. The slow departure from God's word, the introduction of subjectivity into the worship service, and the rest is history. Soon, you won't be surprised to see no psalms were played. 
Charles Spurgeon, around the turn of the century, said this, looking at what was happening in corporate worship. He said, it is to be feared, Spurgeon said, that the Psalms are by no means so prized as in earlier ages of the church. Indeed, the Psalms are neglected today, en masse. Now, the Psalms are sweet, of course. We love them here at Westmount, but they're not all that we sing, right? We take our New Testament cue of a balanced diet. The Bible commands us also to sing hymns. Hymns there, if you look at it, is familiar confessional songs. That's what that means. Some theologians feel that parts of the New Testament are hymns. So you know these passages, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and of course, 1 Timothy 3, 16. All confessional songs are hymns. And those would have been very familiar hymns of the early church. That's why Paul employed them. Well, we sing hymns or familiar songs today, those of old and those that have always been sung. But listen, not just because they're old and familiar. There's a lot of bad ones like that, right? But like New Testament hymns, here's the key. This is what we sing. Familiar New Testament hymns because they're rich and saturated with biblical truth. Hymns like, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We sing what? We sing Lamentations 3. Morning by morning, what? New mercies I see. What about Immortal Invisible? We just started singing. God only wise. This is right out of 1 Timothy 1. In light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. And with those, of course, we sing, as the New Testament prescribes, thirdly, spiritual songs. The idea here are spiritual songs. Spiritual songs. Spiritual songs, not physical songs, not sensual songs, Godward songs, spiritual songs, songs that communicate spiritual ideas, gospel ideas, such as in Christ alone. We sing till on that cross as Jesus died, what? Why are we here forgiven and free? The wrath of God was satisfied, right? We sing spiritual songs like, he will hold me fast. We don't sing, I will cling tight to Jesus as much as I can. But what do we sing theologically? He will hold me fast. And praise God, it's his grip and not mine. On that, I appreciate the remarks of one modern commentator looking out at the landscape of musical worship. He said this, I quote him, There are many things that go on that people think are worship, but they're not. There's a certain kind of music that makes us feel like we're worshiping because of the feel of it and because of the style of it. And it gives us a feeling of peace and maybe a few goosebumps. But the fact is that it may well be that the same style of music, that same mute of music with words that were totally without God could affect the same emotion in us. That's not worship, end quote. That's scary, isn't it? Your hips are moving, but your heart is not to the Lord. Scary. And so Westmount, that's why we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. From call to worship, musical worship, to offering. Now, you're going to tell me with offering, and I warned you, we're moving quickly this morning. We do not have a time of offering as part of service. Well, that's not really true. We do, just not the way that you're used to. It's true. We don't call on you or pass a plate as part of service. Why? Well, it's less likely if we do that. Not impossible. I want to be clear. Not impossible. Very less likely it would be a free will offering, would it? 
And the Bible, when it speaks of giving, always speaks of it this way. Listen, Old and New Testament. It must be done freely. First Chronicles 29.14, what did King David recognize with the offering that he was looking at? as He gave, the, gave it over to Solomon for the building of the temple. What is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? We weren't coerced into giving. This is willing. First Chronicles 29. 2 Corinthians 9.7, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. And so following God's word, we seek the same. So we don't ask or pass or plead. We have a box for offerings at the back on the pillar for those freely wanting to give to the Lord. A part of our corporate worship, but not as front and center as the next element, corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. Westmount, public gathered prayers have always been part of corporate worship. Think about the prayers of God's gathered people. Turn to 1 Kings. This is nothing new that we're doing here at Westmont. 1 Kings 8. Let's zoom into Solomon's prayer. In verse, just going to read verses 22 to 24. Listen carefully. Solomon, and note, where is he? In his prayer closet? Is he by himself? Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you fulfilled it this day. Now that's Solomon's prayer. Consider Nehemiah, chapter after the one Daryl read this morning. What about Nehemiah's prayer in a public assembly? Turn to Nehemiah. Let me read the first three verses for you. Just note the themes of these corporate prayers. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they what? Made confession, then what? And worship the Lord their God. You see that? Now, if we were to look closely at those persons, those are just two, Solomon's and Nehemiah's. This is what we would see. We would see common elements like this. Adoration, confession, assurance, thanksgiving, and petition. These are common elements in the public prayers in God's word. All of those, as we noted earlier, all included in the corporate public prayers in the Bible, and of course in history. Thus, that is why we do the same in our corporate prayers here at Westmount. If you notice, when the men are praying, we pause to pray corporately in service, and every time it includes an adoration, who God is, a confession, corporate confession, an assurance of pardon. Praise God for that, right? We remind ourselves this is not just navel-gazing or beating ourselves up. We need to confess. As we saw this morning, we need to Because it's God who covers our sin, but we also are assured of pardon because it's him. And we give thanksgiving and we petition our great God. Now listen, think about that. And there's even more, but think about those five elements. That's a lot to cover in a prayer, isn't it? Would you agree? And that would be very hard to cover from memory. Would you not agree? And so the men take time in the week and prepare their thoughts. And yes, aghast. 
prepare their prayers beforehand. Yes, they do. Now, I recognize this is very, very foreign to many, but I want you to know, speaking on behalf of the men that offer up these pastoral prayers, these are not forced prayers, and they're not fake. They're not spiritless. They're not feeling deficient. In fact, I can speak for all the men here who have been impacted by taking time in a week to think about what we're saying before a holy God. Now, I think you get on board with that, right? How many times are we not thinking before we speak to God? This is thoughtful, comprehensive preparation to offer prayer publicly on the assembly's behalf. And I might even venture to say this morning, you want us to prepare that. And I also believe you understand me when I say that spontaneous prayers often sound so. I mean, if a man was truly, and I speak for myself first, meditating on God's law day and night, Psalm 1, then maybe a spontaneous public prayer might hit all of those things every time, saturated and so on. A thoughtful, careful, reverent preparation is what fuels our corporate prayer at Westmount. Next, scripture and scripture reading. We hardly need to linger here, and I trust the call and need for this is obvious. However, we need to lay down the biblical foundations. Turn to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. You know about the second generation, the second telling of the law in this book. Let's go to verse 9. All of that established. Joshua has just been named as a successor to Moses. So here you have program and process laid down. Look at this. I'm going to read you verse 9 to 13. Listen very carefully. Then Moses, what, wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time and the year of release, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall, look, read this law before all Israel in their hearing. And not just reading. Listen, verse 12. Note this, friends. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may what? Hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. And he's not done yet, verse 13. And that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. See that? In ancient Israel, laying down the guns, read the word so that it can be heard. And it can be obeyed. Turn to Joshua 8. I just want us to see here. Again, I know I'm moving quickly, but I just want us to see nothing's changed. When that successor comes in, when they're in the land, what does he do? Chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. He's built an altar. He's established worship. And afterward, verse 34, he read all the words of the law. Remember what Moses said? The blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. See that? Daryl read from Nehemiah 8 this morning, an ancient worship service, if you caught that reading. Basically, they're standing in the court. There's a, a reading of the law. The Levites are giving that. There's a hearing. They're helping them. They're giving sense. To the word, and then there's consecration of the holy day and the feast, and so on. Same thing, and of course, nothing changes in the New Testament. If we were to turn over to the New Testament, you can turn there. First Timothy four, very clear New Testament prescription. Look at First Timothy four. This is Paul to Timothy, 
laying out church instructions in this letter. And here's one in verse 13 of the fourth chapter. He says this, Until I come, devote yourself to the what? Public reading of Scripture. To exhortation, to teaching. Public reading of Scripture. That is clear, I trust. But what might be missed are the modes of delivery here. There's no call, and I want us to make sure we're clear on this. There's no call to have music playing in the background as Scripture is reading, is being read. And in terms of who reads Scripture, note this. Turn to chapter 2 of that same letter, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Who reads Scripture in the public assembly? Paul and the Word of God says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That is in the context of leading in the local assembly. It doesn't mean she never speaks. It simply means who's leading in the administration of God's Word. So clear. One last piece. told you we'd be in the Psalms a bit. Go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 Of course, you know, we don't just read Scripture, and that's it. We oftentimes have you recite Scripture, do we not? Look at Psalm 118. Look with me at the first four verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For what? His steadfast love endures forever. And then notice what happens here by the psalmist. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. That is an antiphonal response. That's an echo, as it's called. And this would have been very common in ancient Israel. In fact, here you see in the very text of Scripture, the call to respond by way of God's Word. Same idea if you were to turn to Psalm 136. In fact, you know that psalm. The entire psalm is laid out that way. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever, and so on. And so, beloved, we do the same at Westmount. Every so often, we read responsively. That's why we do that. As you see in God's Word, the reading of God's Word, and here it is, is not a passive endeavor, is it? It's not a passive endeavor. This is not, tell me a story. This is not, let's just hear from the Word of God as we check out. This is one leading and all listening, hearing, and responding. And by the way, as a confirmation of that active process, the leader says, this is the word of the Lord. And all active hearers say, thanks be to God, right? And it may sound very Roman Catholic. You, many of you know that's my roots, right? Don't fear, I'm not looking to bring really any vestiges of the Roman Catholic Church here. But listen, one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church does, among other things, that the ancient church does universal is this active responses in their service. But listen, this is not a Roman Catholic thing. This is a church universal thing. The church of God have always responded to the word of God. Always. The early church, the ancient church, the historical church have always responded with these echoed responses. And what's more, I've even heard a few of you say, you know, I appreciate those weeks when we need to respond because I'm engaged the reading of God's word. Now, there it is. There it is. Precisely, scripture reading is an active corporate endeavor. It's not an autopilot. By the way, we have to note this in this bucket at times. If you've been here for a while, you know that we also at times have an affirmation of faith. We read the Apostles' Creed and so on. This is not rote recitation. This is responding as saints of old always have. Confessing and affirming historical, ancient, apostolic, biblical truth. That's what we're doing. 
demonstrating our continuity with the church of old. And as you notice, these affirmations of truth are always rooted in Scripture. They're ancient. They're not something we devise week to week. So the call to worship, musical worship, offering, prayer, Scripture, Lord's table. Now, as I walk you through this, I just want you to remember, because this will be very brief, this is not a theology or an exposition of the Lord's table. That's for another time. In fact, this has nothing to do with the theology of it in that sense. Simply here, this is methodology. We aim to explain what we do. And really, all we need to explain are a couple things, the two big questions that come out of Lord's Table at Westmount. Number one, why do you do the Lord's Table every week? Why do you do the Lord's Table every week? And we might respond and say, why not? Right? I'm not trying to be cheeky. Why not? And you might say, well, I've never done that. And we might respond and say, well, the saints of old have always, always done that. Turn to Acts 20. Turn to Acts 20. I just want to read one verse. There's many more things we could say here. This is the early church. So not just the early church and right into the Middle Ages and so on that broke bread every week. Look at Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, Right? This is the church now gathering on Sundays. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to what? Break bread. To break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. You're thankful that I'm not applying the last part of that verse, right? I'd be here all night. It's the first part. Once again, Westmount, we're simply following the practice of Scripture and history. For centuries, listen, beloved, centuries Partaking of the Lord's table week after week was the practice. Again, can I share this with you? It's only the past century, actually, in truth, 60, 70 years, where we've deviated and made it monthly or quarterly. It's always been weekly. In fact, speaking of the Reformers, they would shudder to know that places don't practice it every week. Second, why do you mention baptism as a requirement of the Lord's table? That's a good question, right? Why do you do that? And we might respond and say, did unbaptized believers partake of the Lord's table in the New Testament? We might say that. Did they? Further, might unbaptized believers partaking of the table be a problem? Turn to Acts 2. Turn to Acts 2. Acts 2, 37 to 38 You know this account. When they heard this, this is Peter's gospel message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Of course, repent and take the Lord's table. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, next logical flow. In other words, let me submit this to you. There's a transactional sense where this is not complete pragmatically, programmatically, be baptized. Repent. It doesn't mean if you don't be baptized, you're going to hell. That's not what we're saying. But there's something not finished if you repent and confess Jesus as Lord and say, I won't do the external deed. Something very wrong. So there could be a problem. Weston, partaking of the table without being baptized first, listen, is a matter of obedience. Not a matter of timing. Well, I haven't 
got everything together yet, and I haven't been able to make things work, or the logistics aren't there. No, this is obedience. And because we're called to stir one another up, Hebrews 10, 24, we introduce the table this way to help you, to love you, and stir you to obedience. As such, we'd have concerns if you're taking the table regularly and have not been baptized. We then ask, what prevents you from being baptized? That's the logical question, isn't it? What prevents you from being baptized? I won't have you turn there, but you're very familiar with 1 Corinthians 11. And the warnings that come on 1 Corinthians 11 of not approaching the table in a worthy manner. We might suggest to you this is very, very serious because it's a matter of obedience. All right, we must hurry along. Next sermon. Sermon. Another one that needs no explanation, I pray. No one questions the preached word, but... Here's what is telling is how easy it is being given up these days. In fact, a number of you that are new to Westmount have commented on this in other places. The preached word is just easily given up. And what's in its place? A drama, a video, sharing time. It's easily just given up, the preached word. Not so according to God's word. I want you to consider again Acts 20. Turn there. I want you to look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Let me just read you two verses here. Acts 20, verse 26. Before he sets out, he says this to the elders. Therefore, I testify to this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. How so, Paul? I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul preached the whole word to them. That was his ministry. As Paul and the early church did, so we too preach the whole counsel of God. This is why we do expositional preaching at Westmont Bible Chapel. What is that? Simply this may sound like a big word. It just means to say what God says. I want you to know, beloved, I labor every day of the week in my preparation. The men pray, I know many of you pray for those that are preaching the word, that it only be God's word. I need to take advantage of this very moment to say this. God forbid... Anything comes out of my mouth that's my opinion. God forbid. And I need each one of you to pray every day that that is never the case. Only God's word. Only God's word. That is what we want to hear at Westmount. Is that not true? God's word. And only God's word. So we cover each word. That's why we hug the text very closely. If you notice, even through Romans. I don't let go of those verses. I dare not. It's a lifeline. I may want to go here, I want to go there. I hug them very tight. Every verse, every chapter is preached. There's no cherry picking. We do this so that when you come to the tough text, you don't just say, you know what, I'm going to take a pass on that. I'm going through Romans, but I'm not necessarily going to do Romans 9, 10, and 11. Man, that's hard stuff. It forces us, and we need to do that, to go to those texts. Our goal is to glorify God in proclamation, and that is done through instructing and building up the saints and exhorting them to hear and apply the word. And that is why, by the way, we sing one last song after the sermon, a response song, and one that directly flows from the text. It's like the Velcro right on your back of the message as you leave. And speaking of making it stick, this is the last one. Our last service element is all about that, the benediction. This is the final charge by way of a benediction. That's what that word means, a blessing, a final Blessing, a closing exhortation, the final call to hear and go and to do. 
A final piece of scripture is read over the assembly and it wraps the service. And most times that scripture is a recognition. It's a blessing. It's often a plea. Now it's true that the benediction was an ancient church practice, but you're very familiar with its frequency and placement in God's word. You're very, very familiar with it. So often you see these at the end of books, New Testament books in particular, as it closes a letter. Listen to this one in Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know that one. You know the one at the end of 2 Corinthians. Listen to this. Verse 14, chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a benediction in its own right. Listen to this one in 2 Thessalonians 3. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. You see the closing exhortation there. And then, of course, Hebrews, this one also well known, 13 verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see the similarities. Often, of course, as a final charge and an active engagement, the benediction, as you see each time, closing these letters, closing the service, calls for a response from God's people, calling them to respond in amen. I agree, truly. Westmount, that is why we do what we do here at WBC. This is how... And this is why we are here this morning in this place. That is what the Bible teaches on corporate worship. Remember, church, that is why we gather today to praise and glorify him. To pray. That's why we're here, to praise and glorify him. We are not here for ourselves. We are not here as an act of evangelism. We are not here to consume. And we're certainly not here to be tickled. We are here for one reason and one reason alone, to give praise, honor, and glory to the one true God. That's why we're here. And may we, Westmount, continue to do so each Lord's Day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clear instructions in your word about corporate worship. Forgive us when we deviate from those principles, Lord, and choose our own way. Help us, Lord, to continue to do that here at Westmount, not for ourselves, but for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.